let's get right into this. Luke chapter 8. If you'd like, like to follow along in the Bible, we're going to get into this. Let me tell you what my goal is tonight. Here's the thing, right? This is, why, this is why I love this. It's Monday night and you're in church. And this is what it tells me. It tells me several things. It tells me I do not have to be an evangelist. And I like that because I'm a terrible evangelist, right? I'm not very good at it, right? If you're here tonight and you haven't made some sort of decision to, to trust your life in the hands of Jesus, I would urge you to do that. That's, that's honestly, that's my best evangelistic pitch. But here's the thing. Here, and it's not that I don't believe it. It's just the, the, that gift doesn't sit on my life. And so part of, part of um, really being successful and being as fruitful as you could be is figuring out where your gift lies and then choosing to stay in that lane because there are some great evangelists that can't teach and, 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 and some really, really good evangelists that cannot teach. But that's okay. They're not called to be teachers. They're called to be evangelists. Let's do that, all right? So, um, so I'm going to teach tonight, and, and here's why is because I'm in Gladstone, and I love your city. I've been coming, I think, honestly, I think I've been coming for like eight years or something. And, um, and I've just, I feel like um, I just sort of just journeyed and journeyed and journeyed and journeyed. I, I, and, um, and, and I'm happy to keep doing that. I, I, I love you very much. Um, this is, for those of you who don't know me, this is all I do for a living. I travel around and speak. I've had the incredible privilege of being mentored by an Assembly of God pastor who just happens to have his rabbi training as well. So, all my stuff comes from that bent. Also, I have a master's degree in clinical psychology, so I'm qualified to sort your head out. So careful, careful, <laughs> very careful what you, what you say to me. Now, on your way out tonight, obviously our table is sitting over there. If you can't find that, seek medical help. It's taking up the entire space over there, like the entire thing. Um, and everything's available in four formats, CD, DVD, USB, and direct download. Now, if you look at that and you go, why would you carry all that around with you? Let me, let me help you. This is why. is because we make a lot of money from it, okay? Like, I mean, and I mean a lot of money. We make a whole lot of money from that. And here's why. Is we believe that we're not just simply called to go to heaven when we die. That if that's the only reason we're existing is to die and go to heaven, why not go ahead and die? That's just boring and uncompelling. That, that we exist to say yes to the infinite possibilities that the risen Christ has for our life. And, and part of that is bringing heaven to every place we see hell here. So the way I run this business is 100% of the profit from that goes to our main mission in the world, which is to take care of the poor and the afflicted. So we have three orphanages in China to take care of mentally handicapped children. Um, we have a thing in Cape Town that's actually growing exponentially. They, they've asked us to expand it again. And when I say they, I mean the Department of Justice in South Africa has asked us to expand it again. We also occasionally need to use the profit from that to minister in countries that cannot afford to bring us in. And so, so when, it, when someone calls and says, look, we're in, we're in such and so country and we just can't afford, we'd love to have you, please, we need your message here, but we can't afford anything. We can't afford the plane ticket, much less. I'd love to be able to never say no to people based on based on those kind of things. So when places like Mongolia call, and places like, and that has actually happened, I didn't just make that up, uh, when places like Mongolia call, or, or most, most recently, Romania. Um, I got to speak in the largest church in Romania. But, the, but the, average, the average wage in Romania today is $300 a month, right? So that's, and that's qualified people, $300 a month. So to put that kind of burden on, those ki on that kind of income, you just can't do it. But it was my honor to be able to pay my own way, pay my own hotel. When all the pastors and I went to dinner, I picked up the bill. And the way I could do that was from there. So, so on your way out, if you just come by, uh, there's tons of new stuff since last time I was here. And, um, and you can know that you're helping us make a difference in the world. So <clears throat> here's what I want to do, because it's Monday night and you're in church. Here's what it tells me. I don't need to be evangelist. I can be a teacher. And that's great. So I'm going to run this seminar style, okay? And, and because if you're here on a Monday night and you know that it's me speaking, no one is coming 
you know, no one's coming for, for some sort of other experience. We, we want to learn something because that's what's on my life. And so that's what I want to do. And, and I want to do so in such a way that's very prophetic, though. I want to, I want to talk about church. And I want to I give us a different way of thinking about church, maybe. And my goal is not to shift what church does, like, radically. But, but if, I, if, if I can get the leaders of the church in Gladstone, which is sitting in this room, if I can get the leaders of the church in Gladstone to think one or two or three degrees different about church, maybe, maybe, maybe we can do something a, a, a little bit different. And maybe, maybe we can uh, listen to the Spirit of God of what he might be saying. Now, to talk about church, we've got to talk about the Bible. Because, because the Bible comes down to the, the, the center point of, of what we tend to do. It's, it's the center of our liturgy. And so when we talk about the Bible, I want to say some things that should be obvious, but, but maybe they're not so obvious. But for most of us, it will be obvious, okay? One, if you want to ruin the Bible, make it static, okay? If you, want to, if you want to take Scripture and you want to make it horrible, make it static. And I mean, and I mean language like this. If you want to know what God's like, just read the Bible. Well, which part, right? The, the, the part that says, love your neighbor as yourself, that's a pretty good one. But the part that says, if a slave owner beats a slave for laziness and that slave dies within 24 hours, that's murder. But if he lives past 24 hours, it's not because the slave owner owns him. That's in Exodus 21, by the way. And that's word for word, that part. Or Deuteronomy 21, that says it's okay to make little girls shave their heads and clip their nails and marry adult warriors. That one. Or Ecclesiastes 3 that says there's no such thing as heaven or hell. When a human being dies, he goes back to dirt just like dogs. That one. Or Hosea chapter 1 where it says the Lord will delight to break your back in the day of Jezreel and make you regret the day you were ever born. Bingo. (laughs) Or Psalm 137 that says the Lord our God would delight in bashing your infants' heads against stones. How about that one? Or how about 1 Corinthians 7, where it says women should shut their flipping mouths in church? (laughs) That one. Or how about another 1 Corinthians 1 that says it's an abomination unto the Lord for any woman to enter into a church service without a covering on her head? (laughs) You see, here's the thing. If you want to ruin the Bible, you got to make it static. So how do you not make it static? Now, I've taught this I think I've taught this in the region here before, so I'm just going to mention this very quickly. I'm going to give you the summary of it. The way to speak of Scripture in a non-static way is two things. One, to realize that Scripture is not static. It is a dynamic, progressive revelation of what people thought God was at the time that was leading the world to a better understanding of Jesus, the risen Christ, who is the final word of God. The Bible is the word of God, but it is not the final word of God. The final word of God is the risen Christ. Now, you know that in two which is why none of you, this is August 1st, and you know what that means? It's the first of the month. It means that if Scripture is static, then you should have killed an animal today to honor God, according to Numbers 21. And you should have poured out half a hen of wine and a quarter hen of water, by the way. Right? So, but you know, you know none of us did that. Why? Because we know that Scripture is not static. We know that it's leading up to the final word of God, which is the risen Christ, which means two things. And let me quote the great N.T. Wright on this. Any serious student of Scripture should filter any Scripture he ever reads through the character of the risen Christ, for the risen Christ is the final word of God. So we have to ask two questions when we read any Scripture. Two questions. 
any scripture at all, you want to ask two questions. One, how does this filter well through the character of the risen Christ, right? So the scripture that says, if you discipline your slave because he's lazy and he dies from the beating within a day, that's murder. But if he lives past the day, that's not. You want to ask yourself two questions. One, how does that filter well through the character of the risen Christ? And I would say the answer to that is not well, okay? That's absolutely not well. Like when in Deuteronomy 21, where it says it's okay to stone rebellious children, I think that's another one. Like, you know, wait a minute, that's probably not filtering well through the character of the risen Christ. So the first thing you want to do is you want to ask yourself, how does this filter well through the character of the risen Christ? That's first. Second thing you want to do is you want to ask, where is the historical arc of the story that, lead, that is leading us to the risen Christ? If you take something awful like beat your slave in such a way where it takes him more than a day to die, if you, if, if you take something like that and you say, how is that in the Bible? Well, the answer to that is, is that that actually made the world a better place compared to the day before it was written. In Persian Greek and Egyptian law, slaves had zero rights. Moses was actually giving some judicial rights to slaves. Actually, Karen Armstrong says that Moses and the writers of Torah, the guys that were creating national laws on Israel, that Israel was the first national law in the history of the world to ever give any right to any slave. So, so is, is that a word from God? Yes, it is. It's going in the right direction. Is it the final word of God? Absolutely not. The final word of God is the risen Christ. So we want to ask those two questions. Now, with that in mind, I want to talk to you about church. And the, 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 the first scripture we're going to look at sounds like it has nothing to do with church. But if you know me, there's a method to my madness. So, um, <clears throat> so, so give, me, give me a second. And along the way, because this is seminar style, if you think of good questions, jot them down. And, um, and at the end, if we have time tonight at the end, uh, I'll, we'll have a Q&A because it's Monday night and you're in church. You may as well uh, talks through some things. And if we don't have any questions, we'll just go home. But let me put some rules on the questions. That way you don't waste your time. A good question, number one, ends with a question mark. That's one. If it ends with a period, that's called a theological statement. No one cares because that's boring. Okay, that's one. Two, it needs to be mutually edifying. In other words, you need to think about the question and go, I wonder if the whole room would want to know this. This is not the time to ask me about your Aunt Sue's situation. It's not that I don't care about your Aunt Sue's situation. It's just that it's not mutually edifying to the whole room. And three, and most importantly, it needs to be unantagonistic, okay? Because if you believe that Jesus is the Christ who's crucified and the resurrection is true, you're my brother, you're my sister, and I'm not going to argue with you until we fix world hunger. So it may as well just be unantagonistic, all right? So be thinking about those three things as we talk through these issues. Now, this is Luke chapter 8. Um, if you could bring that up for me there. Um, this, the, the, the problem with Luke chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, it, is, it has nothing to do with anything before it and nothing to do with anything after it. It's literally thrown in there by Luke as just sort of a, oh, by the way, right? Now, anytime, it, the only connecting point to what's before it is the word after this. It just says after this. It doesn't tell you how long after this. It say, it's just, okay, after this, we're done with that story. After this, this is what happened. And then it, there's nothing connecting it after this story, all right? And it's just a weird, anytime you see something like this, you've got to ask, is there a story underneath the story? So the first question we want to ask about the scripture is, how well does it filter through the character of the risen Christ? That's very easy to do since this is a part of his life. That's one. Second is we want to ask, is there a history underneath it? And the answer is yes, but let me, let me read this to you. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him, and also some women 
who have been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Because nothing empowers your ministry like demon-possessed sick women. That is just, is that, that'll just do it, right? If you really want to empower your ministry, fill it up with demon-possessed sick women. There's, your, there's a bad hermeneutic on that, but here we go. There we go. Hit, hit that next one. So, so, so uh, Mary, it, it goes on to name them. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. I guess someone counted. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. Notice how he tapers off there at the end. Oh, yeah, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, manager of Herod's household. Susanna, oh, and, and, and some other ones. Um, now, this is a crazy statement. These women were helping to support them out of their own means which is an incredibly countercultural statement. In the first century, it was illegal for women to learn how to read unless you were part of a certain first-class aristocracy. It was illegal for women to learn how to read, which, by the way, this is a good time for me to do this. If you're one of these people who get caught in this sort of, oh, can you believe how bad this world's getting? You need to cut that out because that's uncompelling, and it's just not true, okay? This world's getting better and better and better and better and better, and the reason it's getting better is because Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. He did not come into the world and think it was so, in such a bad place, he had to scrap the world. He came in and he entered into the broken picture of the world in order to interject the spirit of the risen Christ throughout the world in order to make the world a better place and ultimately save the entire thing. He called it the renewal of all things. Peter called it the reconciliation of all things. And Paul called it the restoration of all things. This is what God's goal is. And you know what? He's doing a really good job. Is he done fixing the world? No, he's not. Is it better than it's ever been? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Let me just prove it to you. Would you rather be a woman today or in 1950? today, or 1850, or back then when it was illegal to learn to read. Is God done redeeming women's rights? No, he's not. Is it better than it's ever been? Absolutely. Would you rather be black today or in 1950, or in 1850, or in 1550? Is God done redeeming race relations? No, he's not. Is it better than it's ever been? You bet it is. Would you rather have dental work today or in 1950, or in 1850, or in 1550? Would you rather have a colonoscopy today? (laughs) or in 1950, (laughs) or in 1850. (laughs) It's just better. Everything's getting better. Life expectancy better. Average life expectancy in Jesus' day, 32 years old. 32 years old, which leads to all kinds of observations about things like till death do us part meant something a whole lot different back then, right? Till death do us part in Jesus' day was put up with their stuff for 17 years, you'll die, it'll get better after that, right? I mean, it's just unbelievable. The, the, the life expectancy in 1550 was 37, in 1850 was 45, and in 1925, the life expectancy of the whole world had jumped to an average of 51 years old. Then 1929, antibiotics was invented, and now we're living uh, progressively longer to 84 years old. So if you're wondering why the divorce rate is up, it's because of antibiotics. That's why, right? <laughs> Marriages have to last 50 years longer than people lived in Jesus' day. It's just different, right? Is God done redeeming long life? No, he's not. Is it better than it's ever been? Oh, yes. Violence. According to the World Health Organization, 2014 was the most peaceful year in the history of the world. The history, that the, the, less violence than ever in the history of the whole entire world. And by the way, when they put the graph up, it's not even close. People say, what about ISIS? Yes, what about ISIS? They're evil. They're wicked. They need to be defeated. But in the scale of the world, compared to the Roman Empire, ISIS is Nickelodeon. There's 6,000 of them. Yes, they killed 126 people in France. And yes, that is evil and wicked. But Hitler killed millions. Let's not forget where we came from. Is God done redeeming violence? No, he's not. Is it better than it's ever been? Oh, 
Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, poverty, better than it's ever been. According to the World Health Organization, in 1820, 92% of the world was living in poverty. 92% of the world was living in poverty by today's definition of poverty in 1820. Today, it's 17%. By 2025, they're predicting it'll be 9%. For the first time in the history of the world, world hunger will be below 10%. Is God done redeeming world hunger? No, he's not. Is it better than it's ever been? You bet it is. This world's getting better and better and better and better and better and better and better. There is no time in the history of the world that you would rather live than right now in the center of saying yes to the infinite possibilities God has for your life, right? So this is counterculture. First, women couldn't learn how to read. Second, uh, if women couldn't read, they hardly had money. Actually, women not attached to men in these days were called liminal people. They actually, they, they actually had no rights. So what you have in this story is you have a countercultural thing. Evidently, the way Jesus was financing his ministry around the entire region was demon-possessed sick women paid the bills. Now that is out there, man. Like, look, I know what it costs to travel. I know. I'm take, I've had to take 14 flights in three weeks. I know what it costs to travel. Sometimes rude people say, Shane, you should get married, as if you know what is good for me, right? They say, you should get married. You should get married. And, and you know what? You know, there, there's no big reason. There's no big secret why I'm not married. The reason I'm not married is because I'm not allowed to date on the road. I cannot be known as the guest preacher who takes women out. It's a bad look. And if you can't date on the road, then you can't get to know anybody long enough to get them to marry you. Plus, what would my pickup line be to a woman? Hey, see you in a year. In 362 days, baby, I'm going to come back. You're going to love this, right? That's just not attractive. It's not a real big secret. People say, oh, if you got married, it would just double your expenses. Well, theoretically, it would double my expenses, but everybody in this room knows it would actually triple my expenses. We know how that works. So evidently, when Jesus was traveling the countryside and he went by the local Thai restaurant, because even back then, the, the, the Asians had a corner on the market on this thing. He, he goes by the local Thai restaurant in, in Capernaum. When, when the bill came, for all 12 of his entourage and some of these other people. Evidently, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, was the one standing up going, hey, I got the bill. I got the bill. What in the world's going on there? Let me tell you the story underneath this story that helps the story make more sense. And trust me, it's coming back to church in just a second, okay? This story actually starts in 48 BC. In 48 BC, a guy named Herod Antipater, he chose Julius Caesar's side in a civil war against a guy named Pompey. That was a very good move because Julius Caesar won that civil war. When Julius Caesar won the civil war, Julius Caesar awarded Herod Antipater with the, uh, with, with, with the entire kingdom of Israel as a token kingdom. He just gave it to him. Herod Antipater died in 36 BC and uh, the Roman Empire rewarded his faithfulness by handing it to his son, a guy named Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the Herod we all know of from Jesus' birth. Herod the Great died in 4 BC. We know that for a fact, which makes us sort of change some things around how the Bible's dated. But nonetheless, we know for a fact that Herod the Great died in 4 BC. Herod the Great was a lunatic. One, history, one historian said it was safer to be a pig in Herod's household than his own son. There's one story from history where Herod the Great had a dream that his sons were plotting to take the kingdom from him, so he took them swimming in, the local, in, his, in his front yard swimming pool, and he drowned them all. They were 7, 9, and 10. This guy was an absolute lunatic. He died in 4 BC. The Roman Empire stepped in, and they handed the kingdom to his three surviving sons. The idea was if you could survive Herod's household, you must be pretty tough. 
They gave, they gave the southern region, a region called Judea, to his son Archelaus. Archelaus made a horrible mess of Judea. That's a whole other story. And in 23 AD, they replaced him with a guy named Pilate. Yes, that Pilate. All right, so that was the southern region. They handed the Galilean region to another son of Herod, a guy named Herod Antipas. This gets a little bit confusing because everybody seems to be named Herod, but just follow me. It's there. Herod Antipas took over the Galilean region. In history, Herod Antipas was called the fox. So in Luke 13, when they said Herod is looking to an opportunity to kill you, Jesus said what? You tell that fox exactly where I am. Oh, by the way, um, Pilate was called the eagle because he always carried that eagle around making people bow. So when Jesus said things like foxes have holes and birds have nests, but this was political opposition. This was in your face, sort of, we are not for the empire stuff. Now, the north and east part of Israel was given to Herod's other son named Philip. That's why in the northeast part of Israel, if you go there today, there's still a city, the ruins of a city there called Caesarea Philippi. Literally, a city built to honor Caesar by Philip. This guy was a brown noser to the nth degree. Essentially, he built a city, he built a city to honor Caesar, and just so Caesar didn't forget who built it for him, he said, just so you don't forget it, I'm going to call it Caesarea Philippi so you know and remember that I did this for you. Now, which should uh, sort of shed light on Jesus's trial. Um, Jesus is standing in front of Pilate, and Pilate says, wait a minute, uh, you're breaking the law in Jerusalem, but uh, you're a Galilean. And if you're a Galilean, we need to get Herod involved because Herod's in Jerusalem, and I don't want to step, you're under Herod's jurisdiction as a person, but you're standing in my land. I really don't know how to handle this. This was all part of that story. Now, Herod Antipas is in the discussion for the richest person who's ever lived, right? There's, there's a lot of debate on how much money he actually had, but can we just all agree together that the debate doesn't matter if you're even in the discussion for possibly being the richest man who ever lived, you had a lot of money. One historian said that Herod Antipas had 50,000 people on his personal payroll. That is humongous. I don't think there'd be 50,000 employees in Queensland. I can't imagine. That is 50,000 employees on your personal payroll. That is a lot of money. He's one of the richest people who has ever lived. Now, I want you to think about this. If you're one of the richest people who's ever lived and you have 50,000 people on your personal payroll, that would put him in the top 100 companies in the world today, by the way, um, that is, like as a person, that is just humongous. If you have 50,000 people on your personal payroll, what do you need? You need a CFO. And by the way, uh, and, um, Herod Antipas had a CFO, a guy named Kuza. Kuza would have been the manager of his entire thing. And, and so if, if you're the CFO of one of the richest people who's ever lived, what's your salary? A lot. And if you're married, who has access to that money? your wife, your wife. So it turns out Joanna, the wife of Cusa, would have been one of the few women in the world allowed to learn to read because she would have been in the top level of aristocracy. But it turns out that Joanna was very affected by this local rabbi going around talking about a different way to live and healing people. Evidently, Joanna didn't want to hang out with the aristocracy. Joanna would rather spend her days following this rabbi around who's healing demon-possessed and sick women, presumably some of her own friends, maybe. And it turns out that when the bills came due for Jesus's traveling ministry, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, was one of the people funding the entire project. So it turns out that the guy trying to kill Jesus actually was indirectly funding the entire ministry through the wife of his CFO. Right there in Luke chapter 8, which leads me to this observation. Is there a more unlikely person in the entire story to be funding Jesus' ministry than Joanna? Wouldn't Jesus have had plenty of reason not to trust her? Wait a minute, you work for the husband of the guy trying to kill me. This is, in this story, 
what happens is, and, and, and let me tell you where I'm going with this. We should never, ever be surprised with the kinds of people God uses to do what he wants them to do. We should never, ever be surprised. So, but there's a tension in it. We should never, ever be surprised when God uses the most unexpected person to do something unbelievable in our midst. We should never be surprised when God does that. But in another sense, we should always be surprised. The, the, the buzzword around churches is, what's relevant? How can we be more relevant? How can we be more relevant? And there's a lot of discussion about what relevance is and what relevance isn't. And some people People say, well, you got to stay young. You got to stay young. Of course, the people saying that don't realize that unless they die prematurely, they're going to get old, right? And so that creates a real problem. And so then there's all kinds of discussion around what relevance is. And I can tell you this, I, I have a lot of answers for that, but the main answer is this. You are a life-giving, thriving, relevant church. If you have regular wow moments of changed lives in your midst, what makes a living, relevant church is not their mastery of the Bible, although I'm convinced I love the Bible as much as anybody in this room. I love it. But what makes a life-giving, relevant church is not that they've defined all their doctrines so clearly and so staunchly that no one else get in. What makes a life-giving relevant church is that there are regular experiences that you can point out where God did something completely unexpected with the most unexpected person you know. That there are examples living everywhere in your midst of changed lives by the risen Christ. That is a relevant living church. That's what you see in the story. Let, let me, let me, let me go to, go to something that Paul said. Let me, let me show you this. This is something Paul said in Ephesians. Hit that next one for me. So this is, uh, this is Paul defining church. I, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his incomparably great power for those of us who believe. Uh, uh, next one. Uh, that power, he's talking about resurrection, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, all power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the age to come. Evidently, Paul is insisting that what you saw in resurrection power has been true since before the foundation of the world, and actually Jesus did not inaugurate a new reality. He simply manifested what God was always like, and it is above everything, and he covers his basis in a lot of different ways. What he keeps going. And God placed all things under his feet. All things. Now look that word up all and the word is actually all in Greek. All is all and let's leave all all because when all says all, let's leave it all. Because when all says all, let's leave it all. Because if we don't leave it all, then we run the risk of us not being in all. So when it says all, let's leave it all because it's just better that way. God, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church. Now here's his definition of church which is his body. Now, we've heard that a thousand times. I don't even want to go into that, right? Because we've just heard it too much. The church is his body. No question, amen, I believe that completely. No problem. I just like the next definition better because it's something I've never heard before. For the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So what is the church? The church is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I have studied the Bible my whole life and never seen that before. Nor have I ever heard the church defined that way. Have you ever heard that? What, what is church? Oh, the church is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I've never heard that before. But as far as I know, this is the most ancient definition of church recorded. Remember that, that Paul wrote his epistles 15 years before any of the gospels were written. Like when the council and I see a got it and put it all together... 
Um, they put Paul's epistles after the Gospels, and fair enough, but the Gospels were written way after Paul died. So this is the earliest definition of church I have ever seen written down. And what was it? What do you want? If you ask the Apostle Paul, what is the church? Okay, so you're the church in Gladstone. What are you? Oh, we're the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. I have never heard that. And I think the reason is, is because it doesn't make a good bumper sticker. What makes better bumper stickers are turn or burn, our way or the highway. More definitions of who's in and who's out. But not to Paul. Paul insisted that the spirit of the risen Christ is already filling everything in every way. I hear so many discussions about who has the Spirit of God, who doesn't have the Spirit of God, where is the Spirit of God, where isn't the Spirit of God. That is not a discussion Paul wanted to have. Paul is insisting that, that in Gladstone, let's talk about Gladstone because that's where we are, that you are not called to bring Jesus to Gladstone. You are called to fi figure out where is the Spirit of God already at work in the people of Gladstone and participate with that instead of trying to manipulate it. That's what we are called to be. That God is already at work in any mission field that we ever be called to do. If you go to a missions trip to Burma or something, you're not bringing Jesus to Burma. That's ridiculous. Jesus is already at work in every single person in Burma. Why? Because they're people and they matter and they're everything in every way. And our job is not to deliver belief in Jesus like a pizza. Our job is to figure out where the spirit of the risen Christ is already at work and participate with that instead of trying to manipulate it. What is church? It's the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, anytime you're reading Paul's epistles. Couple questions. Did Paul think he was writing the Bible when he wrote these things? Uh, no chance, right? No chance. He's sitting in jail for a whole nother reason. We can get into that later, but he's sitting in jail and he's writing, and his only hope would be, he would have had no thought that 300 years later, some group of people called the Council of Nicaea were gonna put his letters into something, called, and then he would have had zero thought that 1,000 years later, there would be a printing press invented, and then no thought that 2,000 years later, we would still be reading it. How do I know that? Because when you read Paul's writings, Paul was convinced that Jesus was gonna return in his lifetime, and he was wrong. But he thought that, it's no problem. So when you read Paul's epistles, one of the first things you want to ask is, is does this appear everywhere? Is this in all of them? Because that's the important bits. Or is this particular to one letter? Because if it's particular to one letter, then you can know that there was something going on in Corinth that wasn't going on in Ephesus. Something going on in Ephesus that wasn't going on in Philippi. You can know these things. Which leads me to all kinds of questions about why does Paul use language in Ephesus that he uses nowhere else? Let me show you a few of the, few of the statements here. Uh, next one. So, oh, okay, let's keep going because I'll, I'll run out of time if I go through that. Next, next, next. Yep, next. All right, here we go. Here's some images in the passage. All things under his feet. The riches of his glorious inheritance. The fullness of him who fills everything. Incomparably great power. Mighty strength. All words you don't see in other epistles. Uh, 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 power and dominion. Are you noticing a theme here? Authority, power, headship. This kind of thing, fullness of him who fills everything. Be the head over everything. He, next one, he uses key phrases like, uh, next slide, like riches, great power, dominion, under his feet, the head. You don't see those statements in the, the letter to Colossae. You see a whole nother set of metaphors, and there's a reason for that. To understand why he's using this language in, in Ephesians, we have to do what we talk about. We have to ask, is there a story underneath the story that helps the story make more sense? And the answer is yes, and I happen to know the story. Next one, right? Ephesus was a major power center. 
It was the head of world economics. It was like Wall Street, Tokyo, London, Shanghai, all rolled into one. It was on the port so that anybody in the empire who came from the west could come and anyone who came from the east could come and they would buy and sell and trade and then they'd go back and rebuy and sell and trade for uh, profit. It was the economic power center. It was also the center of religion in, in the Roman Empire. Ephesus was where the pantheon of the gods was. It was also the headquarter of the goddess Artemis. Um, this is a, let, let me show you this. Let me show you this picture. This is a. Um, this is a, this is a, a, an ancient photograph. Um, I, I'm only kidding. This is a, there. There was no such thing. Okay. So it, and this was an artist's rendition of what the Temple of Artemis probably looked like. Does that look like people? who understood religious power, who thought they understood. Artemis, by the way, was this horrible female goddess. She was, uh, uh, in the earliest renditions of Artemis, she was a big stone goddess um, who, had tw- who had 20 sets of breasts, which was just odd, but let's just all admit it, right? A woman with 20 breasts is just awesome, even when they made a stone. And she, she was a, a particularly oppressive, horrible goddess. She was the goddess of, 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 um, of the hunt, so before you'd go get food, you had to go give an offering to Artemis to, to make sure that she would trick small animals to come into your path. But she was also the goddess of protecting small animals. So there was this incredible conflict of interest. And, and, and the problem with Artemis was if you couldn't find food, you assumed that she had been offended. And, and according to the liturgy of Artemis, the only way for a man to show his allegiance to her was to castrate himself, which was incredibly barbaric. But when people couldn't find food, what they would do, men would regularly come to the temple of Artemis and self-castrate and then burn their testicles on an altar um, as to show this female goddess, we are in allegiance with you. There's one story from history from a place called Sardis, which is right down the road. She had another smaller temple there where 5,000 men in one day self-castrated because there was a famine and they couldn't find food. By the way, in 1908, archaeologists found that place and it's now a tourist attraction in Turkey. So if you're ever in Turkey and you go find the temple of what's called Kibbala there, um, if you find the altar, don't sit on it, it has some, it has some history, right? Now, do, do you, th- th- this should start making um, some of the Bible come alive. Remember in Acts 19, it says that Paul went into Ephesus and built a thriving church? And, and remember, because how hard would it be to build a church in Ephesus? Not very hard. All you'd have to do is go in and go, hey guys, um, I believe in a God that loves you unconditionally and he'll provide food for you just because he loves you and you can keep all your bits intact. Come with me, <laughs> Right? And men would have been joining the Jesus movement in the droves. And remember in Acts 19, it says that the, the, the followers of Artemis didn't know what to do with Paul, so they had him arrested. And remember Acts 19.37, the judge says, what do you want me to do with him? He has not blasphemed our goddess one time. In other words, Paul came into Ephesus and he built a thriving church without ever saying one bad thing about that. And that would have been right in eye shot everywhere he goes. Why? Because it's not compelling to be known for what you're not for. What is compelling is to be known for what you are for. Gee, he, he went in with this assumption in Ephesus that Jesus was already filling everything in every way there. His job was not to bring Jesus to Ephesus. His job was to honor the fact that the spirit of the risen Christ was already at work in every person in Ephesus and help them name it. That is Paul's job. Next, next one. Um, um, it was the ancient banking center. We talked about that. It was the head of arts and theater. It was also the epicenter of the political power of Domitian. Domitian was a, a Roman, uh, what do you call him, Caesar. 
Um, he said he was God. He was particularly narcissistic. If you listen up right now, this will help you with the book of Revelation, right? So the book of Revelation, you cannot understand the book of Revelation. It is impossible without understanding the reign of Domitian because Domitian was the emperor that put John on the island of Patmos. And so you got to understand the reign of Domitian. Domitian said he was God in flesh. He was a particular narcissist. He proved that he was God in flesh by in the pantheon of the gods in Ephesus, he put a roof over the top of the pantheon of the gods. So there was this huge open-aired pantheon of the gods, and he put a roof over the top of it. And then on top of the roof, he put a 28-foot statue of, you guessed it, himself, right? And his idea was, was that if I wasn't just the king of kings, I must also be the lord of lords. And if I wasn't just the, if I wasn't not only the king of kings, but the lord of lords, these other gods would have stopped me. But they didn't stop me. They let me put a ceiling over the top of them, and then let me put a statue of myself over the top of that. Therefore, I must not only be the king of kings, I must be the god of gods. The only group of people who didn't buy it were the Jews, because they thought they were just statues anyway. And so, but everybody else was very, very afraid. And so, the, the, the um, advisors to Domitian said, you know what you ought to do? You ought to raise taxes in the Agora in Ephesus, because that's where all the global trade is happening. It's sort of like having a toll road, a, a small amount for each transaction. That's what you ought to do. Domitian said, you know what? I'm not going to do that. That'll make me unpopular. But what I will do is I'll make a law that everyone who buys and sells in the Agora, they must first give an offering to me just for the divine privilege of having the Son of God be their ruler, right? And he didn't see the narcissism in that. So what he did is he built four churches around the four corners of the Agora, ecclesias. And to poke fun at the Jews, by the way, he had his 10 mightiest deeds inscribed on two stone tablets, right? Essentially, you have your 10, I have mine, right? And so he, he had that. And he made it a law that before you could buy and sell in the Agora, you must first come give an offering to him as the son of God. The problem was, how do you police that? Here's how he did it. He hired acolytes, witnesses, and their only job was to bear witness to people coming in and giving their offering before they could go buy, sell, and trade. The way they did that was when they saw you give your offering, they would give you a mark in your forehand or in your forehead that told the leaders of the marketplace, the Agora, that you were good to go. You have done your duty. The Jews hated this because there was no God but Jehovah, and this forced the Jews into underground markets where they were paying four times too much for stuff. It was absolute economic oppression. And so the Jews came up with a nickname for Domitian. He was called the beast. He was called the beast who comes from land and sea. The reason is, is because whether you're coming by land or whether you're coming by sea, you had to first see the beast coming because of that 28-foot statue. So from 79 to 94 AD, which by the way, when the book of Revelations was written, um, from 79 to 94 AD, before you could buy, sell, or trade, you first had to take the mark of the beast. So quit worrying about it. It's already happened. Oh, by, by the way, um, you say, well, Revelation said there's a one-world government coming. Well, when in the history of the world has there ever been a one-world government? The Roman Empire. <laughs> they ruled the entire world at that time. Oh, by the way, are you guys bored? Nobody's bored, are you? Everybody looks okay. Okay, good. All right, so here's what happened, right? If you want to hear something really cool. So Domitian realized most gods had an Olympic-style games in their honor, right? So, so he says, but I'm God, and I don't have an Olympic-style games. That's not right. So here's what he did. He started a biannual celebration of his godness with an Olympic Games. And guess what he called the games? He called it the Domitian Games. How humble is this guy? Now, tell me where you've heard this before and how relevant this is to our culture today. Here's what 
he did. Every two years in the Roman Colosseum, what he did to show his dominance over the entire empire was he divided the empire into 12 districts. Every district had to give up two delegates to come compete in the Domitian games to honor Domitian as the son of God. Guess which district was the only district absolved from having to do this? The capital city, Rome. They did not have to give up their children to do this. So 24 children from across 12 districts would show up at this thing called the Domitian Games. At the Domitian Games, Domitian wanted to create the greatest choir ever created in the history of the world to sing his praises. So when you showed up to the Domitian Games, you were given two things, white robes and gold crowns. And Domitian would stand in the middle of the Domitian games and they would sing a song to him. It went something like this. We praise you, O Domitian, O son of God, for you alone are worthy of all honor and glory and power and blessing. We praise you, O Domitian, O son of God, for you alone are worthy of all honor and glory and power and blessing. And when they finished the song, they would cast down their golden crowns at his feet. Think about your Roman Empire movies. The Roman emperor's there and they're throwing things at his feet. Oh, by the way, Domitian hired 24 people to walk around behind him and sing his praises 24 hours a day in three eight-hour shifts. That's how narcissistic he was. Is this start making revelation come alive to you? And I saw us all, and we were. There. I saw the four and 20 elders, 24, sitting around the throne, and we were casting down our golden crowns around the glassy sea with cherubim and seraphim falling down before him, but we were singing a new song. In other words, I've seen how this ends, and Domitian doesn't get the last word. Jesus does take heart hang in there he's not going to be in charge forever by the way the domitian games ended with a four horse horse race of four horses of a different color mm -hmm -hmm. and whoever won that was declared the winner of the domitian games everyone else along the way was killed the domitian games ended with one scene with two characters one character called death and one character called hades and death and hades would come in on horseback and clean up the dead bodies and i saw death and hell coming in on a uh, Horse. This is all about the oppressive, horrendous reign of Domitian. These people understood power. Let's say it this way. Next one. Paul says, I want to write to you about real power. It hasn't been voted in and can't be voted out. Nothing gave it its power, so it can never be taken away. Next one. It's the real deal. The meaning behind everything. Let's get tapped into that. He's writing to a group of people <laughs> who think they understood religious power, they think they understand political power, they think they understand economic power because they're the epicenter of all three in the Roman Empire. He uses language with Ephesians that he doesn't use anywhere else. Why? Because Colossae people didn't understand that kind of thing. They, they lived under the thumb of the Roman Empire. They weren't the epicenter of all the power of the Roman Empire. Paul says, you know what? You guys think you understand power? You don't understand power. I understand power. Let me tell you about the creation power. You know the logos that was the meaning behind everything? We just saw that physically manifested in the risen Christ. And I want to tell you that it's not just me. He's in you, and he's in you, and he's in you, and he's at work filling everything in every way, including you. And if you want to really understand power, I'm inviting you to get tapped into that. That is revolutionary. Let me show you how he uses, let me show you how he explains it a couple different ways in other places. Next slide. This is Romans. Who should ever given that God should repay them for from him and through him and for him are all things. He's insisting that God's already at work in all things. Next one. Here's how he explains it. This is John, another writer. And here's what he says. Through him, all things were made. Nothing was made that has ever been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of just Christians. No. 
that life was the light of all mankind. Evidently, Paul insists that if you're called to Gladstone, the best way to build a living, breathing, thriving, relevant church in Gladstone is not to see us as one thing and them as another, but to see that whether they know it or not is another question, that they get enlightened to this hope that's already at work in them. But our job is not to deliver something that they aren't, they aren't already. Our job is to honor the fact that God already loves them. He's already at work in them because they are people and they matter to God and they are everything in every way. And our job is not to deliver belief in Jesus like a pizza and help them become like us. Our job is to help them see that God loves them and is already at work in them before they do our ritual one time. That God is already at work in the middle of Gladstone, in every single person. The truck driver going down this road right now, he's in the middle of that because that truck driver is everything in every way. That girl that brought you your pizza earlier today, she's everything in every way. That guy that cut you off in traffic earlier today, he's everything in every way. Your kid's teacher, she's everything in every way. And our job is not to deliver belief in Jesus to them. Our job is to help them see with love that God is already in hand has been at work in them since before the foundation of the world. Let's say it this way. This is, now, this is Paul talking to a different city. Notice his different language. And once again, before we read this one, you got to understand, most of you would understand this because I've been coming for eight years. In Jewish culture, firstborns get justice, secondborns get mercy, okay? Got to know that before we read this. Firstborns get justice, secondborns get mercy. It's a euphemism that if you don't understand it, you'll miss the point. The sun is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all, all creation. So if he's the firstborn over all creation, who gets the justice? He does. Who gets the mercy? All creation, exactly. Not, yeah, not just us. I'm with you. We do, but we do because we're just a part of all. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers and authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. How many times can he use the word all things? He is the head of the body, the church. There's that body church thing again. Now watch this, next one. He is the beginning and the firstborn amongst the dead. So, so if in this passage, who gets the justice? Jesus does. Who gets the mercy? Dead. Yeah, we do. Dead people, our dead loved ones. The firstborn amongst the dead, so that in everything we might, sorry, that everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So once again, he doesn't use a bunch of power words with Colossae. Why would he? He says, you don't, you, let, me, let me define the risen Christ to you. The risen Christ is a whole perpetual, unending, loving mercy that's available to not just you, but to your dead loved ones. You gotta understand in Colossae, that was one of the places where people were profiteering on baptizing dead people. They would say, hey, 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 you wanna be sure that your dead loved ones in paradise, we have this holy pool, and if you pay us a fee, we'll baptize them, and then that will help. Paul's like, no, be set free from that. Keep your money. Here's the thing. Jesus is taking the justice, and your dead loved ones is getting the mercy. This is setting people free from oppression. Next one. So here's some implications for us, right? So there's some of the history now let's talk about application. What does this mean for us when we're building churches in Gladstone? Well, one, it means that Jesus is already at work in any mission field we could serve in. Our job is not to deliver belief in Jesus. It's to proclaim what has been there all along and help people name him. Sometimes people don't know what's going on in their heart. They just need help naming it. 
The church's response to resurrection power is to affirm it everywhere and invite people to connect with that. Let me tell you a story. Do you guys, do you guys know who Sean Penn is? Like the actor, Madonna's ex-husband, right? Do you know what he did two years ago? This is unbelievable. Sean Penn liquidated everything, everything he owned. Beverly Hills Mansion, he liquidated everything he had. And you know what he did? He gave 100% of it to the poor. And not just that, he moved himself to Haiti to spend the rest of his life making other people's lives better. Now, think about Jesus. When Jesus tells stories about people who give everything they have to the poor, does it end poorly or well for that person? It ends pretty well. So, so the news, obviously, he's Sean Penn. The news say to him, Sean, this is admirable, but, but over the top. Can we ask you why you did this? Here was Sean Penn's answer. I cannot put words to it. All I can tell you was there was this internal hum compelling me to give everything I had to the poor and to give my life to make their life better. And I can't put words to it, but I knew I had to say yes. Now, if there ain't but three voices, right? There's God, there's Satan, and you. Which voice is the most likely the one going, sell everything you have and give it to the poor? <laughs> likely not Satan. Definitely likely not you. More than likely, this internal hum, Sean Penn called it, is likely the spirit of the risen Christ at work in him. Why? Because he's everything in every way. Can he name it? Not yet. Is he on his pathway there? Yeah. 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 Let's say it this way. Next slide. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Next one. So what is church? Church is the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Even Sean Penn, even Madonna's ex-husband. What we find is that God is at work right in the middle of that. <laughs> that should take a lot, by the way, if you're paying attention and you're a leader of the church in Gladstone, that should take a lot of pressure off of us to know that God is already at work wherever we think we're called to be doing something. Next one. So what's some counter pictures for this? More factions, more denominations, more us and them, more separation, more in and out. Which leads me to this question. Are we shrinking Jesus to meet our expectations instead of embracing all that he's up to? Does Sean Penn have to respond at our altar call before we honor the fact that God was actually at work in his heart without telling him exactly who he is? Is there any biblical precedent for that? I'd say there's a lot. Cornelius is one great example. He didn't even know Peter wasn't God. But Peter said, God already counted you righteous because your generosity to the poor went up as a remembrance to him. Let me help you give a name to this. Acts 17 is the best. When Paul shows up and he finds an altar to an unknown God that had been there for 660 years, and he says, you guys have been worshiping something that you don't know his name. Let me, give you, let me help you name what you've been worshiping all along. Sometimes God's just at work. Let's say it this way. Next one. Um, a big Jesus requires a big church. A big church that can hold all that Jesus is up to require big people. Let me explain what I mean by that. A church that holds Jesus is a church that affirms what you are already. A church that holds Jesus, what Jesus is up to, names what is already true and invites you to participate. Hey, hey, you know that thing inside of you that you can't really name? Let me help you give a name to that. I'm inviting you to participate with real power. I'm inviting you to do that. Let's, let's say it another way. Next slide. 
how to know you're a huge capacity church. Because it's, it's one thing to say, we need to be huge capacity churches, right? And I'm not talking about big churches, I'm talking about big capacity. But if we have no language for that, that's very frustrating. So, so let's put some language to this, right? We're here on a Monday night. We may as well challenge ourselves. Let's put some language to this. Here's how to know you're a relevant, life-giving church, that there are people you can name whose experience with Jesus changed their life dramatically. The greatest evidence for resurrection is not the Bible, although I'm all for the Bible. But if an unbeliever came to you and said, really, what evidence do you have Jesus rose from the dead? The worst evidence you could do is open the Bible because the Bible's credibility is based on whether he rose from the dead or not. That's circular argument. If an unbeliever come to you and said, wait a minute, what evidence do you have Jesus raised from the dead? The greatest evidence for resurrection is changed lives. It's what evidence do I have Jesus is real? Okay, see that guy over there? Here's the thing. When I met him, he had a life-controlling substance abuse problem and he has submitted his life to the risen Christ and had a real encounter with the Spirit of God. And I saw him when he was here, but now he's here. You can't believe how far that guy's come because of an encounter with God. That is my evidence that God is real and God is alive. That's the best. Let's say it this way. Next one. I met such and so, and their story was such and so before their awareness of Jesus. And they became aware of Jesus here and now. Their story has changed to this. Once again, changed lives. Celebrating. If you want to honor, if, if you want to create an atmosphere in your church that is life-giving and thriving, celebrate people's stories. Celebrate life change, right? Celebrate that. It's so much more compelling than doctrine. Let's say it this way, next one. You know you're a huge capacity church when your community can disagree and discuss without disgrace. That We don't have to be disgraceful if we disagree. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to go, yeah, I'm not quite there, but I honor you because you're a person and God's at work in your heart. It's okay. Let's say it this way that there are times where you are troubled with how big and powerful the power of Jesus is. Let me just, let me, let me be as simple as I can. If there's not regular moments, I'm talking like once a month, where when you really think about what God's doing in your church, that you don't go, flip, I didn't even think, is Jesus allowed to be that awesome? Let me tell you what I mean by this, okay? Because I want to put some concrete thoughts on this. One of my best friends in this world is a guy named Richard Crisco. Now, if you're over the age of 40, you might know that name. Uh, Richard Crisco was the youth pastor at the Brownsville Revival. Remember the Brownsville Revival? It was this big thing that happened for six years. Richard Crisco was one of the three main people involved in that. And um, he's become one of my best friends. I speak for him every year. And, and we just we chat once a month or so. He, he's, just, he's just one of my best friends. He's the only guy I know in the world that I think have the spiritual gift of wisdom. I mean, he's really, really good. And I, and I was talking to him. And we were at dinner one night, and I said, Richard, tell me about the Brownsville Revival. Tell me one thing you saw in the Brownsville Revival that you thought, no way. Like, I didn't think God could do that. No way. And he said, oh, that's easy. I said, tell me. Tell me about it. He said, well, what people don't understand about the Brownsville Revival was that there was 10,000 people lined up at 5 a.m. for a 7 p.m. meeting. That's what people don't understand. And that went on every single day for six years. He said, we worked from 7 a.m. till 3 a.m. every day for six years, like every single day. He said, I do not remember my children growing up, and it's just the grace of God that they all still love me, and they work for me, and they love Jesus because they saw the power of God. He said, all I could tell you is it was the grace of God. It was amazing, right? He said, so he said, well, there was one night in particular we were praying for people. It was 2.30 in the morning, 
We were praying for people, and I looked up, and there was still a line of people waiting, and I thought, oh, but God's doing something, right? And he said, then I looked up in the balcony, and there was a group of young adults, 18 to 24-ish, and they were doing Saturday Night Live skits making fun of us. So what they would do is, is they were all atheists, and they were making fun of us, and they would have one guy stand up, and the other guy would do a skit, and he would pretend to pray for him, and he'd go, shut up! And the guy would go, you know, and they, and they actually had a crew of people around them laughing. I mean, they were doing these skits very well done, actually. He said, I got to admit, they were, it was kind of funny, you know. He said, but I got mad at them because I was tired and they were up there. They're making fun of God. And it's just not nice. And he said, in my heart, I thought, God, send a bear to eat them. That would be great. <laughs> he said, honestly, three minutes later, three minutes later, they were all down the front. And I thought they were bringing their show to the front. And then I just had enough. He said, so I, I, I eyeballed security. We're going to throw them out. And he said, I walked over. And I said, hey, guys, this is enough. That's it. And he said, the leader of the group was so shaken. He was, please, sir, help. And Richard said, what happened to y'all? He said, I don't know if you noticed, but... We were up there making fun of you. Richard said, I did notice. He said, well, part of our skits, he said it was going to be our last skit. This is our friend. I can't remember his name. Let's call him Joe. Joe is paralyzed from a motorbike accident. And in our last skit, we had attached all these ropes and stuff to his limbs. And I was going to pretend to pray for him. And then everybody else was going to make him walk like a puppet, you know. And um, that's the kind of friends you want, by the way. Yeah, when, when you're wheelchair bound and they're going to make you walk around. And he said, um, he said, I walked over to the guy and I pretended in fun to pray for him. I just went, sha-la-la-la-la-la-la. And uh, he walked without help. And he said, at that moment, I realize that I'm dealing with something above my pay grade. He said, please help us. And Richard looked at me and he said, can God use an atheist to pray for another atheist in a comedy sketch, making fun of God and still heal the guy? I said, I wouldn't have thought so. He said, me either. <laughs> he said, that guy got healed that night by an atheist making fun of God. He said, maybe it's actually true that God is actually at work in everybody, in everything, in every way. Maybe, maybe we need to have less rules about who God could use. He said, that guy got healed that night, but so did I. He said, because my concept of God got bigger. I started to embrace more of what God could do instead of being so restrictive. That's bothersome. I love that. Next one. This is uh, one of the metaphors in the New Testament about Jesus. When you don't have language, you use metaphor. One of the metaphors is lion. He's a lion. Now, don't panic about that. He's also called a lamb. It's okay, right? Son of God, son of man. They, 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 just didn't, they, they struggled with language for Jesus. But, but one of the metaphors is lion. I mean, I don't know if you paid attention, but... Uh, but there was, this, uh, there was this subtle 
um, subliminal thing that you would think Jeff and I worked it out before I got here, but we didn't. Um, the, the song playing over the loudspeaker when you walked in was, our God is a lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring in power and fighting our battles, and every knee will bow before him. Which leads me to this observation about church. Next one. A lion doesn't make a good house cat. <laughs> if you cage it, the only way to keep a lion in your house is to cage it. If you cage it, you don't love it. If you domesticate it within your own boundaries, it'll tear everything up. Even if you have a lion from a cub and it thinks you're its mommy, one day you're going to come home and stuff's going to be tore up and your two-year-old's going to be eaten. And it's not because he's a bad lion. It's because he's a lion. The only environment for the lion is the wild, which leads me to all kinds of questions about where have we tried to domesticate Jesus? Where have we said, Jesus, hey, spirit of the risen Christ, I know that everything in every way you're up to, but here's the thing. For us to be comfortable and to be able to profiteer on people's spiritual guilt, we need you to work within our comfort boundaries. We, we, need you, we need you to work. Work as much as you want within this. Because if you go outside this, I'm gonna have to explain something I can't explain, like an atheist healing another atheist in a comedy sketch. <laughs> but, but maybe maybe the key to building relevant churches is Letting the lion out, which, which leads me to this next couple of questions I want us to deal with and wrestle with. One, what is your story of how you encountered the resurrected Christ that made a radical difference? Let me say this way. Where would you be tonight if Jesus hadn't touched your life? Because if we ever forget where Jesus brought us from, we might lose sight of that and think, think that God's not at work in people who are actually exactly where we used to be when God was working on us to begin with. We can't forget our own stories. Maybe, when's the last time you celebrated your own story? Man, without the power of God touching my life, I would probably be here. But because of that, I'm actually here. Let's, let's get real practical. You guys are church leaders. What is your emotional response to the last baptism you saw? Flip, you guys are pastors and leaders in Gladstone. If you're not gonna do anything else well, do baptisms well. I've never seen a baptism here because I'm a guest, but I, that looks like a pretty big pool. May as well be using it, and you may as well, there's no other time in a church service more conducive to what I'm talking about than giving a guy an opportunity or a woman an opportunity to say, hey, church, I used to be this, but God's touched my life, and now I am this. That is, work hard at celebrating baptism. If we've lost our emotional response to baptism, we've lost, we've lost the plot, Let's say it this way. What's your emotional response to the last time you saw someone experience the power of God? Don't lose that. I, um, I got to tell you about this. This is, I'm less concerned about time tonight because you showed up on a Monday. So I'm going to give you my best. Even though I've been flying all week, you got my best tonight. And if you liked it, great. And if you don't, well, I gave it my best. Here's the thing. I had an opportunity in March to do a conference with Clark Taylor. Now, that's not something I have gotten to do a whole lot because he's busy, I'm busy. And our, me and Clark Taylor, our flow, we're friends, but our flow is different. Like, but this one guy had an idea. It was an amazing idea. It was down in Wollongong. He said, let's do a conference. Let's call it Word and Spirit, and you do the teaching. And then when it comes time to pray for people, we'll let Clark do the praying, <laughs> right? Which you've got to give it to him. That's a genius sort of thing, right? And let's just be honest, right? That took all the pressure off me because if Clark and I both have prayer lines, I'd have two people feeling sorry for me in my line and he'd have a line to the street. So you may as well let him do what he does and let me do what I do. And it took all the pressure off him for having to preach. And so he had all of his energy to pray when it was time to pray. And all I did was set the table for him and then go, here you go, and then watch. 
He was doing his thing, you know. And, and I got to be fair, it was pretty normal. It was normal from a Clark Taylor standard, is normal. It was necks and backs and lungs and knees and feet and ankles and eyes. Stuff. Like, like, and you might think, well, it's just a neck. But it's just a neck unless it's your neck. And it's the most important neck ever. Right? 20 minutes, necks and backs and knees and eyes and stuff. Anyway, I could tell from his body language, he's done for that session. It was all three-day thing. He was done for that session. He's walking back to give the mic back. And then, he, and, and then, I, and then I, I was on the front row next to the pastor, and I looked, and, and the oldest person I have ever seen in my life, I'm talking she had to be, she had to be 95. If she wasn't 80, she needs to eat broccoli. She's the oldest. Just listen, whatever you're thinking, just picture the oldest person possible, right? And she's coming down, and two people are carrying her. Now, she is walking, but they're, you know, she's, right? And, and, and I want to be clear about this. In no way am I making fun of her. I'm doing this so you can see the severity of it. She was shaking so violently. I questioned for a second if she was having an epileptic um, fit. She was not. But the, 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 the shaking was, and in no way am I making fun of her. I'd never do that. I just want you to see how violent it was. It was all over the place, right? And they're sort of carrying her, and she's walking. And oh, full of faith, Shane, I'm on the front row. And my only thought was, that poor lady, that is awful. <laughs> Clark turned around and he went, oh, what's the matter with you? She said, I have severe Parkinson's. And I explained, okay. And in the softest I've ever seen him do anything, he just went, oh, well, those arms and hands and legs, They'll quit shaking. They'll torment you no more. This lady went from violent to this. I'm being very fair. There was that, about that much of a tremor. Her face went like complete and total surprise, which is really cool because the Hebrew word for surprise and the Hebrew word for resurrection are the same root word. And that makes sense because if a dead guy walks around, there's no word other than surprise, right? That's surprise. <laughs> she was doing like this. Her face lit up. And, and once again, oh, full of faith, Shane, on the front row. I actually thought to myself, Bo, close enough is good enough here, Bo. You might want to walk away because I'm telling you, that's pretty good. She's like 90 flipping five. That's pretty normal, right? I mean, yeah, she went near and near, but, you know, easy. Just walk away. Say, hey, praise God, walk away. Nope, not Clark. Clark said, that's a terrible look. You can't even hold a cup of tea. He said, I'm not going to quit till you can hold a cup of tea. And he prayed the same exact prayer. Faith rose in the room. He prayed for 20 more minutes. 20 minutes later, they handed her a cup of tea and she could hold it. The amazement of it. I can go back there in my imagination right now. I was so amazed. It's, it's one of the few experiences I've ever had that I think God would have been okay for me right in the middle of church shouting an obscenity. It was, it was unbelievable. I can still see it. I can still be moved by it. I can't. And you know what? It's those moments when you do have a crisis of faith. As smart as I, I've had, I've had a couple crises of faith. My last one was when my grandmother died and I saw her in the coffin. And 
um, something hit me. I, I couldn't tell you, I can't tell you what. I thought, what if we're wrong? Like, what if we're not, what if she's not okay? I mean, I was very close to my grandmother. And as smart as I am, I'm pretty well read. I couldn't, but in that moment, I could not think my way back to faith. It was in that moment that I had to go to an experience I had with God and go, that was real. Because you can always talk yourself out of what you think. You can never talk yourself out of what you saw. Let's say it this way. Next slide. Would we rather attempt to contain Christ to our own values or would we rather see the experiences of people encountering the fullness of him who fills all things? Let me, let me be clear about that. I'm not one of these guys that thinks God hasn't moved unless people are all over the floor. I think that instead of, instead of honing in on doctrine and what we believe all the time, it's only in the last 200 years that the word faith has become a what word, a list of what's actually. In Hebrew, faith is a who word. Because when you put your faith in a list of what's, all it takes is one what sort of crumbling and all things fall apart. But when your faith is in a who, that's an entirely different thing. I'm talking about celebrating from the stage often people's stories. I, one of the most moving things I've seen this year, I was at this great church, one of the best churches I go to, and every Sunday they have a God story. It's well done, it's tight, it's not rambling, it's awesome. And, and one of their God stories one Sunday was a guy got up and he said, hey, he said, um, when I started coming here, I was an atheist. I didn't think God existed at all. I came because I liked a girl. And um, she invited me. And um, I, I'm, still, I'm still not a Christian. But I want you to know that because of the love of God that I've seen in you people, I am now open to the idea that God exists. <laughs> and they went, I mean, they went nuts. They celebrated the fact that the spirit of the risen Christ was at work in that guy before he became saved. Why? Because he matters to God. Let's say it this way. Next slide. Um, the church is here to point you, to remind you of this pre-existing power that manifested in the resurrected Christ and is now looking to touch you. That's why we're here. It's pre-existing power. It's been touching you. Let us help you name it. Let's say it this way. Next slide. Um, at our church, the lion is roaming about in full power. The, the, the decision that we need to make for Gladstone and all over the world is Jesus we honor the move of your spirit wherever it might be, even if it makes us feel uncomfortable. Actually, it would be better if it does because we'll have a whole lot more to celebrate. It's that. May we be people. May we be people who live that kind of thing. Now, I told you to write down questions. I'm sure you have a few. Here's the thing, okay? Um, I wanted to be done at 8.30. And here's why I want to be done at 8.30. It's because it's Monday and you're in church, you got to work tomorrow, it's Tuesday. And here's the thing, I never want to have long midweek meetings because I want to honor your time as people who work. Um, I can tell you that tomorrow night, um, the, 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 the teaching part is half that long. Um, that, that, that's quite in-depth. And I hope you enjoyed it, by the way. You, you, you looked like you did. It was, you know. And I realize it creates a lot of questions. But now, tomorrow night, the, the teaching itself is half that long. We're going to talk tomorrow night about how to get unstuck. And, and we're going to look at the historical arc of the book of Ruth. And, and, we're going to, and we're going to talk about some biblical things that lead us up to Ruth and then biblical things away from Ruth that lead us to Christ. And we're going to trace some dots and ultimately talk about how we can unstick our own life, our own leadership, our own parenting, our own what, whatever. We're going to talk about that. But, but because it's half as long, then that leaves 30, 40 minutes at the end for Q&A. And so if you'll come back tomorrow with those questions you wrote down, because I just don't want to keep people here after 
all right? So I think that's a good plan. I think it honors you. And I, th- and I think I've given you enough for tonight. I think, yeah, that's enough to think about, all right? The only thing I will ask is that if you know you're going to get something, if you don't want anything, don't worry. God bless you. Love you. you know? uh, but if you know, hey, you know, I want to help some orphans. I want to do those things, and I want to learn. Um, if you know you're going to get something, I, this church has a chatting culture, and I'm all for that. I think it's great. But if you could buy and then chat, that would be awesome. <laughs> I've had a big day. You can't believe it. You can't believe where my day started. So, so if you could buy and then chat. It's a, it's a, it's a very, it's, it's actually catchy if you think about it. Buy, then chat. It's just, it's just a great thing. So if you could do that for me, that'd be great. I can't wait to see you tomorrow night. I promise you, your time will be honored, and there'll be some time, uh, there'll be some time to, to, to hash out some of these things um, that we've been talking about. Hopefully, my goal tonight was not to answer a bunch of questions. My goal tonight was to create them. And so, because if I can create discussions about God, then we'll grow and change and move and just, it's just the best. All right? Can't wait to see you tomorrow. Grace and peace. Great. Brilliant. Thanks, Shane. Well, I'm unreal, isn't it? Great. Good things. I just got to somehow keep up with it all and try and grasp it. <laughs> have a great night, folks. Please, if you want to buy, you're welcome to go straight there and do that. Otherwise, have a wonderful night's sleep. Have a great day at work tomorrow. Love to see you tomorrow night.